good afternoon, church. Afternoon, and thank you for joining us here this afternoon where we come together now to open up the Word of God, specifically to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13. And today as we do this, we are continuing where we left off a couple of weeks ago before our brother John Zhang preached uh, last week. And a couple of weeks ago where we left off was Paul and Barnabas in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch where they were proclaiming the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a lot had occurred to get them to this point, but what we looked at last week is going to be very similar since we're just simply picking back up uh, where we left off a couple of weeks ago uh, at verse 23. And so if you have your Bibles with me, turn with me to Acts chapter 13, and we'll be looking specifically today at verses 23 all the way to verse 37 where we will see Paul's proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do this today, we're going to be able to be continually considering the priorities that we ought to have in evangelism. What must we do uh, to prepare our hearts for evangelism, or how will the Lord prepare our hearts for evangelism? And then as we get to the point where we're going to share the gospel message, what do we say? What do we do? What do we do when we have been called, commissioned, and and sent out by the Lord uh, to go and proclaim the good news of His glorious gospel? Well, we see all of this happening here today. And again, in verse 23 to verse 37. And so I'll read the verses, and then we'll go to God in prayer. He says, Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he has promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we come to this passage today with hearts and ears open to be responding to the word that you have proclaimed to us here. We know that as we opened up to this passage, Lord, that that you are doing a wonderful work in the life of Paul and Barnabas as they are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, and you have convicted their hearts to go forward to see that, that the dead men would be brought back to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would instill in us a a heart for revival today for the people of our city. Not only our city, but to the ends of the earth as there are many individuals who are spiritually dead. Even now, uh, walking throughout this life with with, uh, lives that are so completely opposite to your will, God. And And even worse, there are many who think that by their moralistic living or by their religiosity that they themselves are, are seeking to present to men, that they think that they then can be acceptable to you, God. But, but, but God, may we always remember, may we always know and be ready to declare that salvation comes through, through Christ alone, by grace through faith in Christ alone, your Son, Jesus. And it's in his name I pray these things. Amen. Now, the word revival invokes a great deal of emotion, depending on who it is you bring the word up to. To a believer, certainly there is the revival services that we all are familiar with. And to an unbeliever, well, they have a revival uh, in their own minds as to what that might be. But we're not necessarily concerned about what an unbeliever feels about what a revival actually is. We're concerned about this word revival in the hearts of men that we as Christians are eagerly seeking as we proclaim the gospel message to them. 
But what often happens within this term revival and people seeking to bring it about is that people will seek to bring about revival in all the wrong ways, seeking to produce revival in the hearts of men, seeking to bring someone who is spiritually dead back to life through emotionalism or uh, through uh, continually encouraging them to make a response to the gospel message that they are proclaiming to them. It's often the case that we go about bringing about revival in all of the wrong ways. Now, in talking about spiritual revival, we are talking about men and women who are dead in their sins, who need to be resurrected from their spiritual deadness and to be brought back uh, to new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Namely, they must be born again. And to think that we as individuals can somehow produce a resurrection of the dead in our own strength or because we have brought these people to an emotional reaction where they can somehow or some way say, yes, I wish to respond to Jesus Christ without truly responding to the gospel message really is a foolish attempt of us to do the work which God himself alone can do. God alone is the one who can raise the dead men and women to life. There is no other way that man can be saved unless God regenerates them from the dead. It's very important that we remember this because in the commission that we have been given, we have been commissioned by the Lord to go and to share the gospel to those who are dead in their sins in the hopes that they would be resurrected to new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We seek to do all of these different things to try to to produce a response from these individuals, and yet the reality is we must always, we must always have the priority in our mind that God is the only one who will raise this person from the dead. I am simply called to proclaim the gospel message to them. You say, how is it then that people will go about producing these revivals? I'm sure many of us are familiar with what a revival service is, and this is generally the case where people will seek to produce a revival by holding a revival service. They are, 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 are in these revival services playing music. There's some preaching of the gospel. Uh, there is a great deal of, of uh, response, call and response happening. They're trying to communicate the gospel to these people in such a way that they would respond in faith and give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're trying to produce uh, conversion out of this individual. And in my case, of having been to several revivals myself, I've been to a number of them and just one a couple of years ago. And many times you see people who are producing conversions. There are many people who will walk down to the field and make a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many people who will even stay in their seats and raise their hand. They have said that they have made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reality is, is we're often left to wonder, did this person truly make a commitment or were they just led to make a, a commitment out of an emotional emotional response that was produced through the worship music or through the sermon or just through their own uh, emotional being that they have. They just really just brought about a confession of faith that was not, that was not the work of God, but rather it was a temporary response to the words that were being said to them. Often I am left wondering, what is the case in this situation? How many people at these revival services actually make a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and stick with it? How many of these people are actually truly born again? Just a couple of years ago, as I mentioned, we had the, uh, uh, the blessed time of being able to participate in a revival service. And in this revival service, we were able to be what was called a send church. Whereas uh, you would have those who went to the stadium to be a part of the revival service. And every time anyone went onto the, sta- uh, onto the, f- the field to make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, they filled out a card. And what we did as the send church was we received the cards from people who were in our predominant area here in the city of Hollywood. Throughout those three days that we were there. Uh, we, we, we waited till the end of the day, and as people made their profession of faith in Jesus, we got those cards, and it was our responsibility to reach out to them in any way that we thought would be necessary, and so we called them. We would, uh, uh, we would email them. We put them on our email list, a number of ways, seeking to reach out to these people who have made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and said that they wished to follow him. They had done this. They were certainly uh, full of emotion on the day that they had done this, but what ended up happening was with the 30-some-odd people that we had, not a single person responded to us. Not one person, to my knowledge, ever responded back to our attempts to, to disciple them in the faith 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm certain that there are a number of reasons for this. There could have been many reasons for this. But one reason that often sticks out in my mind is the fact that I believe that these people were merely led to make an emotional profession of faith when reality, in the reality they should have uh, made a profession of faith that was through the regeneration that God himself had done in their hearts. Because if they had truly made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they would have had a lasting profession. They would have a continuing profession rather than having an emotional high that they received from this revival service and then just kind of went along their way back to their old way of life. They were not really born again. Now, do not get me wrong, I'm not against revival services. God certainly has done a number of wonderful works uh, through the life of Billy Graham's revival services and also Greg Laurie, who in our days has been doing a number of harvest crusades harvest festivals. All I am saying is that as we seek to attempt to share the gospel with an individual, we must always caution ourselves with the fact that unless God convicts the heart of that individual, they cannot be born again. We must not seek to persuade someone in such a way to lead them to make an emotional profession of faith when in reality they have not been born again. And if we do that, if we, if we lead them to make this emotional profession of faith and say, well, you're saved, you're good to go, well, the reality is, is we have led this person into a lie. They're not born again. They have not been born again because we force them to make this profession of faith. And this happens all of the time in our desire to see people saved and in our desire to see revival, to see hearts revived where individuals are able to come, to come and share in the blessed hope that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ, we often seek to produce these revivals in the hearts of men, whereas it is only God who can revive a dead man to life. Now, how do we know this to be true? How do we know that it is only the work of God that leads one to be resurrected from death to life? Well, Scripture speaks on it in a number of different places. In Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, we read of the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's reminding them, he's reminding them that they themselves have not brought themselves to this position that they themselves find themselves to be in. They have not been brought to life. They have not been made worshipers of God through any work that they themselves had done. It was totally, totally a transformation of God where he brought them from death to life. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, individuals have been brought from death to life. We cannot bring a dead man to life. It's impossible for us to do. No matter how often we persuade someone, no matter how many times we seek to drive home the truth that Jesus is Lord of all, unless God raises that man or woman to life, they cannot be saved. Now, why say all of this? Why say all of this? Why remark on the fact that, that though we seek to see revival in the life of our community, in the life of our family members and of our friends, why is it that we must always caution ourselves with this truth that only God can raise the dead to life? Well, the reality is, is because as we come to our passage today, we see the Apostle Paul and Barnabas himself, too, going to spiritually dead men and dead women in the hopes that, he would, that they would be able to, to, to lead them to a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing this, they have spent a great amount of time, great amount of effort, a great amount of, of resources have been spent to get them to this place. And certainly the tendency for them would be to say, well, let's just get as many people as we can to make this profession of faith so that we can feel good about all of the work that we are doing. We've had 10 commitments or 20 commitments or 30 commitments or 40 commitments, however many commitments for Christ. They could just say, we just want to have commitments for Christ. But you see, they're not doing that. They're not doing that. They're not seeking to have commitments made for Christ. They're seeking to see dead man being brought to life. And they are going about it in the way that all of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ ought to do it. 
It is not through an emotional response that we should seek people to respond to Christ. We do not, lead, we do not need to continually penetrate their minds and say, you need to be born again, you need to be born again, to, for them to be able to be brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not even through social uh, resources or social help that we can convince someone to be led to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that an individual can be born again is through the proclamation of the gospel message of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way that man or woman have or will ever be saved. Without the proclamation of the gospel, the true gospel in which God has passed from men and women alike who, are, who we are continuing in the tradition that they themselves have continued in, that is the only way that man can be born again. And so we must not deviate from this. We must not in an effort to say, well, I just really want to see this person saved. I want to see this person saved. We must not, we must not add to, take away from, bring about more emotion into it. We must just preach the old-time gospel which saves, which brings dead men to life. Paul remarks on this in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, verse 10 to 17, he says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, no one is ever revived by God apart from faith in the proclamation of the gospel that we ourselves are presenting to these individuals. And knowing this, we ought to see it as our highest calling as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to be making Christ's gospel known to the ends of the earth. Whether it's here in the city of Hollywood or God calls us to the farthest parts of the earth in the mission field, we must have and see as our highest calling making Christ known to men and women alike, knowing that if we proclaim the gospel and if God chooses to revive their hearts, to, to convict them of their sin, they will respond in faith and be saved. They will be brought from death to life. All of us should see evangelism as our highest calling. All of the early churches seen it that way, and continuing through the ages, they have always seen evangelism as their highest calling. But you see, this is a frightening thing for us. Evangelism is a frightening thing with the fear of man, where we don't know where to start, we don't feel equipped, we feel evangelism is to be reserved for those who can hold the revival service, or who has the boldness to proclaim the gospel in front of men and women who they don't even know, or even who they do know. We feel that those who are limited to be able to share the gospel are a select few of God, and the rest of us should just say, well, we'll leave the work to them and, and, and see God work through their lives. But the reality is, is this this is a false attitude to have as believers. Though the fears exist, though the inadequacy may exist for us when we attempt to go and make the gospel known, the reality is, is that all of this can be overcome if, if we are choosing to be led by God, filled with His Spirit to go and fulfill His great commission. Setting aside all of the inadequacies, all of the doubts, all of the lack of resources that we think we don't have, and simply saying, God, I trust you, I know that you have commissioned me to share the gospel, and so I am going to go out in faith and make the gospel known. This is what we see the Apostle Paul and Barnabas themselves doing as they have been sent out by the Spirit of God to go and make the gospel known. And what we have here in Acts chapter 13 and in our passage today in verse 23 to 37 is really Paul proclaiming the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But before we look at Paul's proclamation of the gospel, so in order that we would be able to know, well, what do we say to these people when we go and share the gospel with them? What I want us to do is to go back to verse 13 to 16, which really is the beginning of this passage, to see, to see the priorities that we must have if we are going to be faithful to the call that God has given to us to go and make his gospel known. To go and make his gospel known, we must, we must know these two things, these two priorities that Barnabas and Paul himself, themselves had in order that we would be able to be faithful proclaimers of the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first one is very 
simple. And if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember it because it's the same thing that I said a couple of weeks ago. The first thing that we must do in order that we would be most faithful witnesses to proclaiming the gospel message is we must go. We must go and proclaim the gospel message. Look to verse 13 and 14 for just one moment. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, what we see happening here is we see Paul and Barnabas going to share the gospel. This brings home the truth that it is the reality that not many people are going to come to us and ask us to share the gospel with them. I don't know about you. I've never had anyone do that to me. No one's ever said, can you just tell me the gospel? They've never, they've never started that conversation with me. But we are the ones who have been called to start those conversations with individuals. And now I'm not saying that we must go in the way that Paul and Barnabas did. They had a specific calling from the Spirit of God. All I am saying is that if we expect to be faithful proclaimers of the gospel message, well, we need to go and do that. You see, as we see from the example of Paul and Barnabas here, they have been going, going nonstop since the beginning of chapter 13. They were in Antioch, in uh, Syrian Antioch. They were commissioned by the Spirit of God to go from Syrian Antioch into the island of Cyprus. They made it into the island of Cyprus, and when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God there. Then they traveled all the way across the island of Cyprus to Paphos. They proclaimed the Word of God there, which is where we learned of the man uh, that was uh, uh, trying to prevent Sergius Paulus from believing in the gospel message. From there, they left from, uh, from Cyprus, and they traveled across the sea all the way into where we just read in Perga in Pamphylia. From there, they traveled about another hundred miles up into the Taurus mountain range, up through the Taurus mountain range, in order that they could finally settle where we are now in Pisidian Antioch. They have been moving. They have been going nonstop since the Spirit of God sent them to go on this international missionary travel. You say, how many miles did they travel as Luke begins this passage here in Acts chapter 13? Well, roughly 400 miles over land and sea. This seems like a very insignificant amount of miles given our day. We could drive 400 miles up to San Francisco or Sacramento in about six hours. Big whoop. Well, no, these guys, as we know, the transportation was not as effective as it is in our day. So these men had to endure a great amount of turmoil to go on this travel uh, that the Holy Spirit had sent them to do. It was a very difficult thing, but they were just constantly moving, going forth to share the gospel message, knowing that, well, the church had been planted in Antioch, uh, in Syrian Antioch. They had a number of elders there who were proclaiming the gospel message. They had an established church there. There was a number of people who could proclaim the gospel there. So let's go off to the next place, plant a church, to the next place, plant a church, and just continually moving along to share the gospel message. You say to me, well, well, who calls us to go? Is it me up here saying that you need to go and share the gospel? No, I'm merely just a mouthpiece of the Lord Jesus Christ who is proclaiming what all men and women have proclaimed through the centuries that Jesus himself has commissioned us to go and share the gospel. If you look back to Acts chapter 13, verse 2 and verse 4, we see the Spirit of God who has led Barnabas and Paul to go, saying, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And in verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And so it's not men who are telling other men to go. It's not women who are telling other women to go. It is the Spirit of God who is commissioning all believers to go with the gospel message. And you say, well, certainly the Spirit of God is not calling me to this. Well, you're right. The Spirit of God has a specific calling for Barnabas and, and, uh, and, and Paul here. But the reality is, is for all of us, the Spirit has commissioned us. Jesus himself has commissioned us to take the gospel message to uh, far distant regions, wherever it is that is that he would call us to. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28 in your Bibles. And I know it's on the screen behind me, but I want you to turn in your Bibles if you have them so that you can see just so clearly this, this simple point that is often overlooked by many when it comes to proclaiming the gospel message. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, which is the Great Commission. All of us have read it numerous times. 
But I wonder if we recognize that small two-letter word there that is at the beginning of the commission that Christ gives to the disciples and in turn gives to us. He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, if you mark in your Bibles, I want you to underline that word go so that you can constantly be reminding yourself of the fact if I do not go, the reality is people are not going to come to me to ask me to share the gospel with them. I can never get down on myself and say, well, why, is, why am I never sharing, able to share the gospel message? Why can I not share the gospel message? If, if you can answer the question that you have been going to share the gospel message, you should never, ever, ever have to lament about the fact that you are not able to share the gospel message because by the very fact of you going, you're going to come across people that you are able to have a conversation with to share the gospel message to them. But if you do not go, if you stay put, if you just kind of go throughout your life, minding your own business, doing your own thing, uh, living your own life, and, and pursuing your own dreams, well, then, of course, you're never going to share the gospel. But you see, in the Great Commission statement, Christ commissions his disciples to go. Whether it's one or two steps to the person next to you, or a hundred some odd miles to someone that God calls for you to go share the gospel with, wherever, wherever God calls for you to go, go and share the gospel with that individual. You see, this word is so simple. This word go is so simple, but many believers have been inspired by the word of God that has called for them to go. And because of this, we have seen the explosion of Christianity throughout the ages as many men and women have been brought to new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have gone. If they stayed in Jerusalem and just saw people come to them on Pentecost and then just waited for people to come to them in Jerusalem, the church would have never expanded at the exponential rate that it was expanding. But you see, because they went, the church continued to expand. Dead people were continually brought back to life. You see, in calling us to go, as Jesus calls for us to do this, he really is calling for us on a journey. And all of us desire to have a journey or a pilgrimage, as some call it. All of us desire these purpose in our lives. Well, well, we have a great purpose in our lives. We have a journey that we can travel with the Lord in each day by simply going to people with the gospel message to make Christ known to them. And so then we must ask ourselves, do we go? Will we go? Will we go and share the gospel message? You say, well, but all the obstacles, all the busyness of my life, how will I have time to go? How will I be able to go? Yes, the obstacles will be there. The lack of time will be there. But nevertheless, we must go. I want to share with you an obstacle that Paul and Barnabas themselves faced as they themselves were seeking to go to Pisidian Antioch to share the gospel message. In Acts chapter 13, verse 14, we get this brief note about their comings and goings. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. Now, this is a very, very short phrase, but then he just goes ahead and says a couple more words to lead us to the point where he says, but then they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. You say, well, what is this? How is this show an obstacle here? How is this show an obstacle? They went to Perga and Pamphylia, and then John left them, and then they went from Perga to Antioch in Pisidia. How is this an obstacle for them? Well, if you know anything about the geography of the uh, uh, Asia Minor, the region in which they were in, to travel from Perga and Pamphylia all the way up to Antioch and Pisidia meant that they have, had to travel through 100 miles of mountainous ranges, the Taurus mountain range, until they were able to reach Pisidian Antioch to share the gospel message there. It was a long journey that they themselves had to face. And in fact, we know that it was a treacherous and difficult journey that was many obstacles came their way because Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 When he's discussing the number of different uh, persecutions and obstacles that he has faced in his evangelism journeys, he says that he has been on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, and in danger from robbers. Now, him being in danger from rivers and in danger from robbers certainly happened on a number of his evangelistic travels, but it certainly happened as they traveled from Perga all the way up to Antioch and Pisidia. And the reason we know this is there was a man, a church historian by the name of Sir William Ramsey, 
who traveled the path that Paul himself took and went through the mountain ranges, the Taurus mountain ranges that Paul and Barnabas himself took and traversed over the very difficult rivers that Paul and Barnabas had to traverse over. And not only that, saw through archaeological digs the number of different robbers who were seeking to really destroy people as they were trying to make their way up to Pisidian Antioch. He writes uh, in his book, St. Paul the Traveler and Roman Citizen, He says, this journey that Paul would have taken would have included danger from rivers and danger from robbers. He says, to get to Pisidian Antioch, they would have had to cross the Sestris and Eremidon rivers, which were prone to flooding and often very difficult to cross. On top of this, the Taurus Mountains were also infested with robbers who even plagued Alexander the Great and Augustus Caesar during their days of conquering. And so Paul and Barnabas, in seeking to go share the gospel up into Pisidian Antioch, would have had to go to deal with robbers. They would have had to cross very treacherous rivers. And who, who else knows what they would have had to deal with? But nevertheless, they knew the obstacles were there. In spite of all of that, they wanted to make the gospel known. And so they overcame those obstacles. They couldn't avoid them. They had to overcome those obstacles. And as we see, they are in the city of Antioch, and they are proclaiming the gospel now. But if they never, if they never just overcame those obstacles, they never would have made it to Pisidian Antioch. And who knows how long it would have taken for the church to be planted there. Who knows how long it would have taken for these people in the synagogue that Paul and Barnabas find themselves to be in to hear the gospel there. They overcame those obstacles because they saw it worthy. They saw a worthy travel to share the gospel, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so we ask ourselves, is it worth it for us? Is it worth it for us to take the gospel message in spite of the obstacles, in spite of the, 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 the treacherous people that we might come across, in spite of the people who are going to persecute us? Is it worth it for us to share the gospel, knowing that if this person responds in faith, they will be saved from sin, saved from an eternal punishment in hell, and brought to new life in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, secondly, and just briefly, we see in verse 15 to 16 of Acts chapter 13 that not only must we go and share the gospel, but we must also be prepared to proclaim Jesus Christ. We must go and proclaim Jesus, and we must also be prepared to proclaim Jesus Christ. Again, in verse 15 and 16, it says, After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, and as we know, he went in to share the gospel message with these individuals. And this teaches us a very, very important principle that we must always have at the back of our minds when we are anywhere, when we go anywhere. We must always be prepared to proclaim Jesus because we don't know when the opportunity is going to come that we are going to be able to share him. We could be in the grocery store. We can be at the convenience store. We can be at our job. We can be at a party. We can be at a sporting event. We can be anywhere anywhere, and we could have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel message. And if we are not prepared, well, we have a missed opportunity, and we are left only to regret the fact that, man, I wish I would have shared the gospel message with them. You see, for Paul and Barnabas to come to Pisidian Antioch, they had a unique opportunity to present the gospel in a city that was really the hub of all of Asia Minor during these days that they went there. It was the commercial center that funneled people from all different regions. People were coming from the east. They were coming from the west. They were probably coming from the north and also from the south. It was a tremendous, tremendous commercial center there in Pisidian Antioch. And Paul, in being prepared to share the gospel here, not only, not only was able to reach these people with the gospel message, but then as they went out wherever it was that they went to, he was, they were able to then share the gospel message with those people back home. And we have this same opportunity here in the city of Hollywood. Just as it was in Pisidian Antioch, we can look at, the, look at a map and you can see that in uh, Antioch of Pisidia, it was in Asia Minor, and it collected, uh, connected to Colossae, Laodicea, Ephesus, Magnesia, and all of the Greek world of the Aegean. On top of that, it went east to Lystra, or Lystra, Derby, and Tarsus. There was many cities, many cities which we are probably familiar with because Paul would write letters to these churches that were in these cities. There was a tremendous opportunity to reach people right where he was. And knowing that, he was prepared when he got there and sat down in that synagogue to be able to proclaim Jesus. Christ. 
If you think about the opportunities that we have today here in the city of Los Angeles, they are very much like what Paul himself had in Pisidian Antioch. Uh, As we know, Los Angeles or Hollywood is the self-proclaimed entertainment capital of the world. People come here, millions of people come here each year for a number of different reasons, and we have the opportunity to meet these tourists or whomever it is as they come into this city of Hollywood for all different reasons, and, and we are able to lead them to a presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ if we were but willing to have these conversations with them, knowing that when we reach them with the gospel message, even if they reject it, they can still go back to wherever they came from and tell people about that and get the word traveling to all ends of the earth if we would but simply be prepared to proclaim the gospel message here in this city of Hollywood that we find ourselves to be. And on top of that, Los Angeles has over 4 million people who live within the, the, the county of Los Angeles. So you say, well, what about the tourists? You know, they're going to leave and get, they're going to go and we'll never see them again. Well, what about the 4 million people who live here, who we have the opportunity to take the gospel to wherever it is that we find ourselves to be? And you see, if we're not prepared to do this, well, then we never will never do it. But the the more we prepare ourselves to do this, the more confident we will be able to do these things. And just just trying out, can I share the gospel with this individual? Let me just try to talk to this individual. So what if they reject us? So what if they say, I don't want to hear anything that you're saying to me? We have done our part in being going to share the gospel and being prepared to share the gospel message. And that is all that God requires of us. God requires our faithfulness, and he calls on us to leave the fruitfulness to him. He will bring the dead to life as we proclaim the gospel message to them. Now, finally, and this point is the most important point of all, it's from the verses that we read at the beginning of our time together, and that is that we must know God's gospel. It's not enough for us to just go and be prepared when someone says, hey, can you share the gospel with me? Well, we must also know the gospel message in order that we would be able to present it to someone when we go to them to do just that. And as these verses here in verse 23 to 37 testify to us, Paul here is proclaiming the gospel message. There's a number of verses that we're going to take, and we're going to split them up in a few different portions. But in order for us to kind of pick back up where we left off a couple of weeks ago, I want to just make the first point once more that Paul made when he first brought the gospel message to these people in verse 17 to verse 23. Because as we pick up Paul's speech here, we pick it up in verse 23 where he says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. We're picking it up in the middle of his speech, and so lest we be confused, what did he mention to them from verse 17 to verse 22? If you weren't with us, you'll have no idea. If you were, maybe you have forgotten. And so what Paul is doing here is he is preparing himself to be able to share the gospel with these individuals is first, he tells them in verse 17 to 22 that all of God's redemptive acts culminate in the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. He's introducing Jesus to these individuals. He's not telling them the gospel yet. He's just introducing Jesus to these individuals. He's making a a practical attempt to be able to lead into an opportunity to share the gospel with those individuals, such as what we ourselves would do. We don't just go right into sharing the gospel with someone. They're going to say, what are you talking about? We, We introduce them to Jesus in a way in which will be practical for them to be able to hear the message that we are going to present to them. And then as we get their ear to hear what we're going to say to them, we then will do as Paul does here in verse 23 to 37, and that is that to tell them about who Jesus is and who he was and who he always will be. We first get to show them through a practical way, a way that will be meaningful to them, who Jesus, or, or we get to, to tell them Jesus' name. Somehow or some way we work Jesus into that conversation, and then, and then we share the gospel message of what Jesus himself has done. And so first, what Paul has done with these people, these Jews, and also God-fearers, Gentiles, who are in this synagogue, is he has first related to these individuals. And he has said, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that all that God has ever done and ever will do, all of his redemptive acts culminate in the person that I'm going to tell you about. And certainly they were ready to listen to that because all of the Jews had the messianic hope that, that, that God's Redeemer would one day come. And so they're going to say, well, who is this person that you are talking about. You've got our attention now. Who is this person that you are talking about? And Paul says to them in verse 23, which is really the linking verse to the beginning part and then into the second part, he says, well, I'll tell you who this man is. It is Jesus. 
Jesus. He has come. He is the Savior. Just as God had promised He would bring to Israel a Savior, He has brought to Israel a Savior. He has brought to them a Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. He's got their attention. But you see, now what he must do is he must be able to to really proclaim to them that what he is saying is true. Because all of these people are going to say, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Isn't that the guy that got killed? Isn't that the guy that everyone rejected down in Jerusalem and they crucified him on the cross? What do we want to do with this man? You see, they're going to test Paul to say, show us that this man really is who you say he is. Show us that this man really is the Savior of the world. And this is what we are attempting to do as we proclaim God's gospel to these individuals. We are attempting to show them that though they are dead in their sins, God has brought to them a Savior, the Savior Jesus Christ. But they must test us, and we should expect for them to test us. We're calling on these people to surrender their lives to an individual who they have never seen, who they have never heard of, possibly, if this is the first time they've ever heard the gospel. We are calling on these people to surrender everything and to follow our Lord Jesus Christ, simply because that is what our Lord calls us to do, surrender all and follow him. That's what we're calling to do. And so, and so Paul, he's got to have something to say to this. We can't just say Jesus is the Savior and expect someone to say, oh, yes, he's the Savior, everything I've ever wanted, everything I've ever needed, and then they're going to respond immediately. We cannot expect for that to happen. If God's been working in their heart, it certainly could. But we must be prepared to be able to proclaim to them God's gospel from His Word. Not our opinion, not what we think about Jesus Christ, but what has God said? How has God proven without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is His Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior? Well, we do it the same way that Paul himself has done it. And the way that Paul does it here in verses 23 to 37 is he does so by doing it with what we can call prophetic proofs. Prophetic proofs to say, you want to know how you can know that Jesus is the Savior of the world? You want to know how you can trust in this man for everything and anything that you have ever hoped for in terms of the fulfillment of God's forgiveness of your sins in your life? You want to know how you can stake your life on this man? Well, I'll tell you. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is the one that God has promised Israel, and he has revealed, he, God has revealed him as he has come to the city of Jerusalem to proclaim that he is the Savior of the world. You see, the second point that we must know in God's gospel is that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. That God prophesied in the old through his prophets that there was going to be one who would come. The Messiah would come and he would give of himself to save the people Israel from their sins. And not Israel alone, but all who would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. And so Paul has to show this to these people. And again, not convincing them because really the convincing is left to the spirit of God's convicting work in their lives. He merely is simply going to say, this is what God has done. God has proven that this is his Messiah. If you believe in this man, this man, Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's what he's seeking to do for them. He's seeking to bring them to this point. And and as you know, they are in a synagogue. They have read through the prophets. They know their Bible. And so Paul's going to lead them on a journey through the Old Testament to show them just how how truthful his message is, just how truthful his testimony is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so first he makes this statement, this bold statement in verse 23. He says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he has promised. Jesus is the promised seed of David and the eternal king. He is the promised Savior. You see, this is a point that must be tested. As I've said, people are going to test us on this. We can't just say Jesus is a Savior and expect everyone to respond immediately in repentance of their sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For some people, they may need to have it proven to them. And so we open up the Word of God and say, listen, God made it very clear that when he was going to send his Messiah, it would not just be some Joe Schmo who would stand up and say that I am the Messiah and everyone should believe him. Everyone should believe everything he says, follow him blindly. He doesn't have to prove himself. Just follow him blindly. This is the one that I'm going to send to you. No, God did not do it in that way. Instead, God proclaimed through the mouths of the prophets 
just exactly how, to the T, exactly how his Messiah would come, his earthly ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his burial in the grave, and uh, uh, burial first, then resurrection, his appearance to all uh, after he resurrected from the grave and his ascension back to his glorious throne where he would be seated at the right hand of God. God planned it all out in the Old Testament. He proclaimed it through his prophets. So anyone who came saying that they were the Messiah must be tested. And if they failed at any point, they were to be disregarded as someone who is false and not followed. But you see, Paul is going to say, listen, Jesus has fulfilled all of the prophecies. All of the prophecies from the Old Testament, all of the messianic prophecies from the Old Testament that came from David, that came from Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, all of the Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled. Uh, And certainly as it pertains to the Messiah's first coming, all of these things have been fulfilled. The Messiah has come. And so in the first two verses, that, well, in verse 24 and 25, he says, Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And so the first point that Paul makes to prove that Jesus is the Messiah is he says, you you know that in the Old Testament, just how God said that there was going to be one, a voice crying in the wilderness to make straight straight paths the way of the Lord, the one that was going to be the precursor to the Messiah, yeah, he came. He came, and his name is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one who was promised as the precursor to the Messiah. He even proclaimed that he himself was. He was fulfilled as the precursor to come uh, to lead the way for the Messiah. And this would immediately have brought them to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 to 5, where it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. But Paul is simply saying to these individuals, you know the one, the voice that would be crying in the wilderness to make straight way the paths of the Lord? Yes, he has come. John the Baptist has come. And so it's not that Jesus just appeared and said, here I am. He didn't do that. The Messiah was not going to do that. Instead, the Messiah was going to have the road paved for him by one voice crying in the wilderness. And as John himself was approached by the Jewish authorities in John chapter 1, the gospel of John chapter 1, John the Baptist was approached and they said, who are you? Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the one? Are you the prophet that Moses promised? Who are you? He says this, And John actually writes this, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. And so as Paul is seeking to show that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Savior that God promised, he is the seed of David who was promised in the Davidic covenant, as he is seeking to prove this to them, he has done so initially by saying, okay, yes, he is the son of David. He has been had a precursor to his uh, uh, earthly ministry, John the Baptist. There's two prophecies fulfilled, and they're going to say, well, what about all of the other things? What about all of the other messianic prophecies about uh, the one who would come, the Christ who would come, sent by God? Have those been fulfilled as well? And Paul, of course, he's going to say, yes, indeed they have. And let me tell you just exactly how these have been fulfilled. And so he goes continuing right on in, right on in to verse 26 to 29. He says, brothers, the sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. 
This goes to continue to show the prophetic fulfillment that came as a result of Jesus' earthly ministry. In Jesus' rejection, that was prophetically prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. In Jesus' death on the cross, that was prophesied and it was fulfilled in the New. In his burial in the grave, being buried with a rich man, that was prophesied in the New. All of these things, all that God had said about the Messiah has come Pass. The Savior of the world has been sent to us, his people here in Israel, or to, to, to Israel, and where they are is in Pisidia and Antioch. He says the Savior of the world has come. He's seeking to prove it to them that Jesus himself is the Messiah. And so the first thing he says, he says, listen, as Jesus was in Jerusalem and these rulers were there, they did not recognize him, nor did they understand those prophecies that were uttered by the prophets. In their rejection of him, they fulfilled all of the prophecies about him. And so immediately we can go to Psalm 69 verse 4. Psalm 69 verse 4 was a messianic psalm about the Messiah. When he came, he would be rejected by a number of people without any cause. Having done nothing wrong, they would just simply reject him without cause. Psalm 69.4, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without a cause. This verse is quoted in John 15 verse 25 to note its fulfillment. And so Paul says all of those leaders who rejected Jesus were simply fulfilling the prophecy that God gave through, uh, through David, who is both a king and a prophet, He's fulfilling these prophecies that were sent. He was hated without cause. On top of this, Isaiah also prophesied that when the servant of the Lord came, when the Messiah would come, he would be despised and rejected by men. That's Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. And this is just exactly to the T what is happening or what has happened to Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, listen, I am showing you. I am showing you that this is the one that God had said would come from the Old Testament. This is the one that you can have forgiveness of sins in if you place faith in his name. Not only does Paul say that the rejection of Jesus Christ was prophesied, but even more so, this is just a wonderful point. In verse 29, he says, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. You see, Jesus was not on that cross any longer than was necessary as prophesied by God. And everything that happened to Jesus on the cross was planned, prophesied, it was proclaimed in the Old Testament. It all went according to God's plan. Jesus, Jesus was no victim. Jesus was a victor. He was coming in the name of God to proclaim salvation, salvation to Israel and anyone who would call upon the name of his name, Jesus Christ, to be saved. I just want to recite a few of these prophecies that were fulfilled on the cross as Jesus himself was up there. Psalm 109, verse 25, a messianic prophecy. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. This is what was going to happen to the Messiah on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Psalm 22, which is a wonderful messianic psalm. You should read through all of it and just see exactly to the T of what happened to Christ on the cross, prophesied some seven, eight, even almost a thousand years prior to Christ actually coming. Psalm 22, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John 19, 23 to 24, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus, as all was completed on the cross, it was prophesied in Psalm 31, verse 5, Into your hand I commit my spirit. In Luke 23, 46, we have the fulfillment of that with Jesus calling out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. These are just a few of the prophecies that have come to fulfillment in Jesus' suffering on the cross and his going to the cross as the atonement for our sins. Going further from that, you can look in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, which foretells the piercing of the Messiah's side, which is fulfilled in John 19 verse 34. And then even in his burial, as I have said, Joseph of Arimathea fulfilled prophecy as it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, when it says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. See, all that happened to Jesus Christ, 
all of it happened. All of it happened in order that God would make known to Israel and anyone who would hear his word that this is my Messiah. If you place faith in his name, you shall be saved. And so Paul's simply telling the people in that synagogue, this is what happened. God has done it. The Messiah, the Messiah has come, and he is seeking to lead them to an understanding that God had sent Jesus in order to fulfill his plan of redemption, which was promised through the prophets. And they don't have to just take Paul's word for it. They can go to God's word and see it completed to the uttermost. Jesus has fulfilled all of the messianic prophecies about his suffering on the cross. And then they would say, well, The Messiah had to die? The Messiah had to die? Where is this in the Scriptures that the Messiah who would come would have to suffer in such a way? Where is it would come? Well, if the Messiah, the Messiah as Israel was was told of the Messiah's coming and as David was promised uh, a, a child to come after his name to have an eternal kingdom, if this Messiah was to have an eternal kingdom, he could not be dead because the dead Messiah can rule over no one. No one, no one who is dead can have authority over anyone's life because they did not have authority over their own life. They are dead. So Paul says, okay, I'm not going to stop it here because God has not stopped his story here. Continuing, as Paul reads, or as we read of what Paul says in verse 30, all the way to verse 37, Paul says not only, not only was he rejected on the cross, not only was he uh, spit upon, not only was he completely disregarded as a phony on the cross, all of that was prophesied in the old, but was also prophesied in the old is that this Messiah, God's Messiah, would not stay dead. Instead, God promised that he would raise the Messiah from the grave, and that is exactly what he did. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. God raised his Messiah from the dead. The Messiah would not see corruption. The Messiah would resurrect from the grave. The promise that God gave to the fathers in the old has been fulfilled in the new. Again, Paul is just seeking to lead these people to respond to the truthfulness of the gospel message. He's not telling any lie. His testimony is true because it is proven by God himself as God had proclaimed it in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, Paul cites two pieces of evidence for the truthfulness that the Messiah would resurrect from the grave. Two pieces of evidence for its truthfulness. First, the resurrection of Christ was attested to by many witnesses. He says in verse 31, he says, uh, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So, not only is it prophesied in the Old Testament, which Paul will get to, but also Paul will say there were many witnesses who saw the Messiah Messiah resurrected from the grave. They saw Jesus in a physical, literal, resurrected body. They ate with him. They fellowshiped with him. They prayed with him. They touched him. They touched the piercings in his side. They touched him. They saw him. They literally were with the resurrected Messiah. And it was not just two witnesses which were required by the law, but rather there were over 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They, they could place their faith in this man. This man, Jesus Christ, had resurrected from the grave. But on top of that, God had also promised once again through his prophets that his Messiah would live and not remain in the grave. That his Messiah was more than just a man who came on the scene. Rather, his Messiah was God himself. And through the Messiah's resurrection from the grave, he would make known definitively that this was his beloved son. That this one who was sent, though he was despised and rejected by men, he was loved by the Father because he had been in communion with the Father for all of eternity. For all of eternity, this was not some man who came upon the scene. This was the Son of God who made himself known among men and, and certified who he was, exactly who he was through his resurrection from the grave. And this goes to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which is quoted in verse 33 of our text It says, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, some people think that this verse is alluding to the fact to say, well, well, this is when he made Jesus his son, or, or this is when he adopted Jesus as his son. Somehow Jesus is less than God. Jesus is less than the Father. But in reality, what is actually being said by the Father to the Son here is he is saying, I have made it known to all of the world that you are who you are. You are my beloved Son. You are the Son of God. You have been with me for all time in fellowship Even before the earth was created, I had fellowship with you, and I have made you known 
among men. At the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this was the icing on the cake to prove that Jesus was exactly who He said He was. And not only that, not only that, going to verse 34, verse 34, Paul writes, and as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He was spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. You see, these holy and sure blessings of David were to come through the promised Messiah, through the Davidic covenant. But you see, these were an eternal covenant. This was an eternal promise, an everlasting kingdom, which could never decay, which could never be overthrown, which could never be stolen away by any man, woman, or child. This was to be an everlasting kingdom. And you say, well, what does this verse have to do with any of that? Well, in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying to the fact that through this Messiah, through the one God would send to Israel to give of himself for the people's sins, this was the one who the promises of David would come through. And if the Messiah was dead, well, those promises could not come. They could not proclaim that those promises had come. But because the Messiah was not dead, in fact, he ever lives, those promises were available to all who would respond by grace through faith in His name. And then finally, one final point, and we'll just move on through these here. In verse 35, he says, therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption." Right here is a prophecy of the promise that God gave to His Messiah to resurrect Him from the grave, that He would not remain dead, He would not stay in the grave, nor would His body see corruption in the grave. Rather, He would be resurrected from the grave. And as Paul says, this is exactly what has happened to Jesus Christ Himself. He did not see corruption. Though He was buried in the grave, His body did not remain in the grave. He did not remain in the grave. He was restored to life, and He ever lives to save those who call to Him by grace through faith, believing in His name alone. You see, Paul has, has made his point. He has gotten to the point, and we'll see it as we continue on in the next week in verse 38 to 43, where he calls on these people. He says, the point is clear. Jesus is the Savior. I have proven to you that Jesus is the Savior from God's Word. It is upon you to respond to this message that I have given unto you. And we'll look at that in the coming weeks. But, but in order for us to know that this is what Paul is getting to here, I want us to just read once more verse 26 and verse 32 to 33. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. 32, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. You see, what is Paul getting at here in all of this? And again, we ask ourselves the question, what are we to get at when we are seeking to share the gospel with these individuals? Well, namely, We are to lead this person to an understanding that God has fulfilled the promise of salvation given to the Old Testament fathers through the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who has secured salvation for all who place their faith in Him. This is the point that we are seeking to make to anyone when we bring the gospel message to them. This is the point that Paul is seeking to make. We're not giving an opinion. We're not seeking to lead them to an emotional response. We are simply stating to them the facts of God's gospel in the hopes that God will regenerate them to life as they believe the message that we have proclaimed to them of Jesus Christ and what he has done, his life, his death, and his resurrection from the grave. If we do that, we have been faithful to proclaim the gospel message. And if the individual responds, that person will be raised from death to life. And if they do not respond, well, they stand condemned, lest they turn from their sins and respond at a later time. You see, what Paul is doing here is, again, he is seeking to show them that Jesus has lived the perfect life. Jesus has died as the atonement for sins. And as he resurrected from the grave, he now ever lives to save anyone who comes to him by faith in his name. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, the author of Hebrews says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so you say, well, what am I to make known by God's gospel? What am I to make known by God's gospel? Well, simply put, we are to make known that Jesus alone is able to save. We are simply proclaiming to them that Jesus saves. Jesus Christ of Nazareth saves. By no other name 
No other name can man be saved but by Jesus Christ. And so as we go and make the gospel known to people, doing this, in effect, we are telling them Jesus is God's promised Savior. He was prophesied in the Old, and we don't have to say prophesied. Some people might not know what we're talking about. But we can say He was promised in the Old, He was come in the New, and He ever lives to anyone. He ever lives in order that anyone who would call the name of His name would be saved. You say, well, how do I present this to someone in a way that will be meaningful to them? Listen, we live in a society today that everything is relative. Truth is relative. It's by experience. You know, it it doesn't even have to be fact. It doesn't even have to have happened. They just say, well, this is how I feel, and so this is what I am. We see this often in the transgender community. This is what I feel like, so this is what I am. This is how our society is going. Truth is all relative. It doesn't have to happen, but if I feel like this happened, well, then it's good enough for me. When we proclaim the gospel message to them, we're not telling them that we feel like this has happened. We're not telling them that we feel like they're going to be in hell if they do not believe in Jesus Christ. We are telling them the facts of God's gospel. And if we are seeking to proclaim it to them faithfully, we are saying to them, listen up to what I have to say. This is not an opinion. This is not an idea. This is a fact of history. And if you respond to the message of the gospel, you shall be saved and you will be brought to everlasting life with the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you do not, if you do not, you will remain dead in your sins, destined to spend an eternity in hell. And so one thing I would suggest for you to do today as you seek to share the gospel is to stress the utter reliability of God's message. This is not your message. And again, you tell them that, listen, I needed to be saved by this message as well. One thing people say, who are you to judge me? Who are you to judge me? We're merely the messengers of God who have been sent to proclaim his message. We're saying this is God's message. And all I'm asking for you is to hear me out. Hear me out of what I have to say. If you respond to these words of life, you shall be saved. You know, at the onset of our time together, I made the remark that we all desire to see revival. We all think that we can go about doing it our own strength with our own purposes, seeking to produce an emotional reaction from an individual. But the reality is, if we faithfully proclaim the gospel message, we will do all that is required of us. If we just simply proclaim to them Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection from the grave, and that he alone is the Lord of all who is able to save those who call upon his name by grace through faith, they will be saved. If we do that, we have done our part. But if we think that in order to make it more people-friendly or, or seeker-friendly, that, well, we need to add to it or take away from it or only give them a little bit here and a little bit there, we have presented to them a false gospel, and we are leading them to damnation if we lead them to think that that is the gospel which can save. All that we're called to do is proclaim what God has said. It's so simple. It is such a simple thing for us to do. We do not need to be ashamed of it. We do not need to say, well, I don't know if this person is going to believe it, so I'm going to add to it to make it more inviting to them. No, we don't need to do any of that, for the gospel alone has the power to save. As Paul says, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and to the Gentile. You see, the gospel is founded upon God and his word, and there is no need for us to stray from these facts that God has made clear. God has spent centuries writing his word as he prophesied from the old through his prophets and as he revealed it in the new through his apostles. We don't need to add to his message. God has done the work. God has made it possible that all could be saved. All he calls for us to do is to proclaim his message to the people. And if we do this, we will see God revive the hearts of those he has called unto salvation. We will see revival. We will see dead men brought to life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for just the time of, of your church that they have given uh, in order that this, this passage would be able to be proclaimed and exposited in such a way that it would have a lasting meaning on their hearts and it would be true to your word. Lord, I thank you that you have given us this wonderful day to be able to, to come together as your church, to hear, of, to hear both in the morning time and in the afternoon time of the, of the responsibility that individuals have to respond to Christ, as we heard in the, old, or in the morning service, and, and also our responsibility to, to have the right priorities in leading people to, to hear about Jesus Christ. God, I pray that as you do your work in the lives of each individual that has been here today, that, that your name would be glorified in all things and in all that we do. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.